Welcome to episode 36 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. It is my pleasure to introduce Lydia Dinworth. Lydia is an award-winning science journalist and a sought-after speaker. She is a contributing editor at Scientific American and the author of Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, an Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond, which was named one of the best leadership books of 2020 by Adam Grant and called the best of science writing by Booklist. She has written two other books of popular science, I Can Hear You Whisper and Toxic Truth. Her work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Time, and many other publications. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, with her family. It is my pleasure to welcome Lydia to the podcast. So Lydia, thank you for doing this. Welcome to the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, Todd. Uh, I'm Lydia Denworth. I am a science journalist based in Brooklyn, uh, but I am also the mother of a child with a cochlear implant. Um, and those two things come together in a mm -hmm. book I wrote a few years ago called I Can Hear You Whisper, uh, an intimate journey through the science of sound and language. Um, but I have also written other books about other science topics we might touch on. But um, but for today's purposes, uh, my, my being Alex's mom, I have two other kids too, I should say. They get left out sometimes. <laughs> yeah, they're they're around too, right? They're around, right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, it's nice to see you. It's good to see you. So so let's go back to Alex, uh, back uh, in, in reading the book. I, I didn't realize uh, until I read the book that he wasn't identified until age two. Was that right? With hearing loss? That's right. I have described our journey to diagnosis or identification um, as a falling downstairs in slow motion. It just, <laughs> right. it just right. went on and on. Um, he, let's see, the short version is that he was born four weeks early. Oh, sorry. My cat is making an appearance here and is, and it's going to get. Usually, usually my cat is, is around too. So <laughs> okay, squeak. <laughs> they may meet go. each other before it's over with. <laughs> Sorry about that. She leapt onto the desk right now. Um, so Alex was born four weeks early and uh, he had he failed the hearing screening in the hospital 
But they told me at the time, you know, well, it's probably there's a lot of mucus in his ears. He's early. Mm -hmm. That's probably what it is. And, uh, you know, you should go back in a few weeks and get it um, and get him tested again. And so that's what I mean. The funny thing was that my older, my middle child had been born in that same hospital, not even two years earlier. And I didn't even remember that he had had a hearing screening, but he did and he passed it. Um, so in Alex's case, I went back in about three weeks uh, to see an audiologist there and they did an OAE, you know, um, and she said that she thought that he was fine in terms of hearing um, and that it was, in fact, the mucus early on, early on. So that meant that as he started missing some milestones and things like that, hearing was the one thing we thought it wasn't because that was the one test we had done. But he did all through that first year. He was slow to uh, do various things. And he was my third son, my third child. And so I had been down this road before. So I, you know, I knew I knew what it had looked like with my other kids. I was trying not to compare too much, but he was slow both to walk, to sit up, to walk and to talk. Um, and so at about, um, let's see, 15 months, he, we went, I, I prevailed upon my pediatrician to have him evaluated. They really kept telling me it was the sort of thing where every time you would really think something was wrong, he would then do the thing you'd been waiting for. Right. So it was that, you know, on the order of, you know, is this a problem? I right. think the analogy I use is like, it's a constant sore throat that you can't figure out if it's turning into something more or not. Right. Uh, anyway, at 15 months, he had a um, uh, an evaluation with early intervention and they decided he needed cognitive therapy and physical therapy, but not speech. Uh, he had three words at the time. Okay. Uh, and, um, and he had a hearing test. Let's see. No, he didn't have the hearing test until 18 months. So three months later, uh, and he was doing really well on everything else. Um, but he was still not talking anymore. And in retrospect, I realized that he, um, he was, not imitating, um, but I didn't understand it as that at the time, or I didn't, I didn't notice that and, and pick that up. And so at 18 months, he failed his first proper hearing test in a sound booth. Um, but it was still, there was still a lot of fluid in his ears. So it took several more months to confirm that this was not, um, this was not related to, you know, uh, an infection or something that this was, that there was an underlying problem. So he was nearly two before he was properly identified with uh, moderate, at the time, moderate to severe loss in both ears. Uh, and we promptly got, um, sorry, the cat is probably making all kinds of noise on <laughs> the microphone fine. here. This is the downside of a fancy microphone. Um, so uh, um, he got hearing aids right away uh, at, you know, just right around his second birthday. And we thought, okay, great. This is, you know, terrific. This is uh, now at least we have an answer. That's how I felt. Right. I've got, mm -hmm. I, because I was so confused what, you know, what is um, going on with this child? Because he really wasn't doing um, any of the things that his, or most of the things that his brothers had done, you know, and when you would read books with him, he couldn't identify 
you know, with the cow jumping over the moon, I'd say point to the right. cow and he, he wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, he got the hearing aids. At the time, they said it was moderate to severe loss. We had no hearing loss in our families that we knew of. So this really was the first child that I ever, first deaf child I ever knew, or child mm-hmm. at that point, um, hard of hearing. And then um, the the ENT told us, you know, we're really unlikely to be able to figure out what is causing this. It's often, you know, but these are the tests you should you should do just in case. And then right. it turned out, lo and behold, that the CAT scan revealed that he had um, Mondini dis- uh, mm-hmm. dysplasia, right? So, and mm-hmm. and he had um, enlarged vestibular aqueduct. So he had uh, both a congenital problem and a progressive problem. And so, you know, in my thinking, he should never have passed that screening at three weeks. Uh, but right. it is possible that there was enough hearing at the time. Um, and for I'm you know for the parents who aren't yet familiar with all of this the 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 malformation of the inner ear means that his inner ear is does not is not formed all the way I and mean, you can probably put that more more clearly but um, so he really never could have had fully normal hearing um, but it presumably got worse in the in the in those two years and uh, so then the thing that ha- the problem with the uh, with the EVA was that. The doctor told us, well, you know, you might want to avoid contact sports or, um, you know, he shouldn't go scuba diving, (laughs) you know, the changing pressure, right? He was too, but Mm -hmm. the contact sports or scuba diving was not the problem, but contact sports and two older brothers, that was going to be tough, right? And sure enough, within, um, within about six months, he lost all the hearing in the right ear. And then he became a candidate for a cochlear implant. So now we're going on to our third year of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure this out. And so he got he got the cochlear implant at um, about three months before he turned three. And he unusually for the time. So this was 2005, 2006. He was his mm-hmm. surgery was December of 2005. Um, he used he was advised to keep the hearing aid in the other ear which still had uh, more hearing in it and to use the cochlear implant and at that time there were people who were saying oh really are you sure because the you know the message that the brain is getting is different from these two devices but um but that's what he did and as soon as he got the cochlear implant he really just took off and so that next year finally things started to to work out so that is the long and involved story of why of why we didn't know right away. Right, right. And and Alex is what round 20, 21? He's 19. He just 19. turned 19, 19. Uh, in April. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh and how would you say his journey has been uh over the years? Uh it's been great, really. I mean, he I think he qualifies as uh a complete success story in the mm-hmm. world of, of cochlear implants. And in the sense that he has, um, once he got the implant, I think that the combination of the hearing aid and the implant really opened all his, all the doors for him. He could hear everything. I mean, I, you know, in retrospect, you look back, I, I see that having had those hearing aids for a few months, I guess it was at the time that he got the implant did help. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, he was talking more, but he was still way behind other two-year-olds his age. Um, 
and he wasn't making the kind of progress that we expected. And then when he got the cochlear implant, though, he was really quick, quicker than mm -hmm. the average kid um, to immediately sort of take off. And I think it was that the implant, as you well know, kind of gives you it's it's harsh and unnatural, but it's absolutely every sound, right? It's the right, whole spectrum right. of sound. And so he was uh, as this kind of like fluorescent light versus a candlelight, <laughs> you know, right, exactly. beautiful, yeah. warm, natural light or something harsh, but it, so then he could hear the T, the T's and the K, so the K mm -hmm. sounds and things like that, that he had been missing before. And so then he, I mean, he, he just, that first year was amazing. And within, um, by the time he was four, he was fully mainstreamed, but he was getting, um, he had a teacher of the deaf who came into the classroom all the way through elementary school and middle school and even in high school. But by that point, it was, she was really more of a, of a counselor for him mm -hmm. to navigate the, you know, his, his disability himself. Um, right. He, she, you know, he, uh, he had speech therapy for a few years and then he had some, we all, we had, a we did have a lot of really, I would say academic tutors. He had speech language, um, but it was pretty sophisticated stuff. Most of what he needed was really help um, making sure he wasn't missing things in, you know, English class and in um, his, uh, and he, so he did just fine academically. He wasn't an absolute mm -hmm. star, but he did great. And he, mm -hmm. uh, and he became a big athlete. Um, so he's actually going to go to college to play basketball um, awesome. Well, which is, yeah, which is very exciting <laughs> and not at all when the doctor told me no contact sports, right. <laughs> not quite the path we thought we were going to be following, but uh, here we are. And um, he still uses a cochlear implant and a hearing aid. And, um, and he, you know, he, he speaks really well. He, mm -hmm. I mean, what I think about his, you know, I can't know. That's one of the things that I think is really hard for parents you you're not in their heads. You don't know what their experience is like, right. but he, um, and what I suspect is that he makes it look a lot easier than it is. And so mm -hmm. most people who interact with him just really don't imagine how much work he's doing to get through the day. And maybe he doesn't realize how much work he's doing. Um, he does not do well in noisy situations like a lot of people. Sure. So, um, sure. you know, he doesn't like parties and restaurants and things like that. Mm -hmm. Although a basketball gym is his, <laughs> is his, you know, uh, he's, he's great there, but you know, he knows, he knows what he's doing. His coaches, um, uh, you know, work, they, they work with him to make sure they have a lot of conversation on the sidelines and that they're not just yelling at him when he's on the court, you know, right, you know gyms right. are the worst acoustically. Oh, yes. I mean, it's uh, All right. that reverberation so, um, going around. It's, but terrible. he's, yeah, exactly. Um, but he is also, he's got, uh, tons of friends and, and girlfriends and he's, he's been socially very adept and, um, he operates quite fluently in the hearing world. So we are, you know, we are thrilled. Uh, he is thrilled. We are thrilled. He, um, and, you know, we'll see how it goes when he gets to college. He mm -hmm. did, you know, the things I would say he, you know, I, I like to believe that he's been taught his whole life to advocate for himself and all of that. But mm -hmm. like a lot of teenagers, you know, he resists 
some of that. There's <laughs> sure. things he could be doing, like using FM systems in, in high school that he just refused to do. He kept right. claiming they didn't help. I don't believe it. I think he just found it annoying and didn't want to be call it any more attention than than necessary. Right. Um, right. But yeah. So but he's but he's had really um a great right. And if I had known at the beginning, you know, what it would look like at the end, I it would have been a lot easier. But life isn't like that, is it? That's right. That's right. Well, it, you know, it certainly sounds like you guys did everything humanly possible to ensure that he had options and that he was going to be a success. And uh, so having great parents and two older brothers, probably to, you know, for the for the younger child wanting to be like the older brothers and wanting to communicate and wanting to be in, you know, doing what they're doing, all that's uh, great motivation as well. It is for sure. I think that having the siblings around made a big difference. It also helped me that he was my third child. And uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I feel for people who are going through this with their first child, because you just don't, there's a bunch of things you don't know, and you can't unpack the, you know, what's, what's, what's parenting and what's child development and what's hearing loss. And there's still things that I can't know for sure, you know, what was, which was which, or they, 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 they meld together, I suppose. Uh, But it is, um, yeah, I, you know, I feel what I did. I mean, so it came naturally to me because by profession, I'm a reporter and a a researcher and a writer. And so I just researched the heck out of this thing um, as a lot of parents do. But then I had the ability in, well, I didn't decide to write about this until Alex was about five. Um, so those first years, you know, I, I say, I mean, I was writing the book about Alex from the moment he was born. I just didn't know it at the time. Right. right. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, I then once I decided to do it, I had the luxury of calling the world's experts, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of them anyway, and talking about this stuff and um, and getting you know, a lot of advice and information, although a lot of what my book is about is, about is um, some history and, you know, mm-hmm. explaining what it was like to be a hearing parent, um, feeling uncomfortable with the perception in the deaf community of cochlear implants um, and understanding the brain story, because hearing is really in the brain, the ears are just the beginning. Um, and so uh, it is... Um, that is, for me, that was uh, fascinating. And here I was, this well-educated professional person who thought I knew a lot of things. And it wasn't until I had a child who couldn't hear well that I understood just how much depended on the brain and how much literacy, not just spoken language, but literacy and reading was going to um, benefit from getting sound into his ears. Right, exactly. It's you know, the title of the podcast, The Listening Brain. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So I, I wonder, you, you talk about writing the book and, and writing the book of Alex, in a sense, uh, the, from the time he was born, and you just didn't know it until you actually started writing it. Was the book and that process a way of coping with his diagnosis? Sure, absolutely. It was um, It was a way of coping, although... To some extent, I think I had done a lot of the coping in those first few years, and I was in a more 
confident, comfortable place mm-hmm. by the time I decided to write about it. Sometimes if things are too raw, right. <laughs> you, um, you know, it's harder to write about them. Um, and, but I was also mindful. I mean, this doesn't have to do with hearing. It has to do with mm-hmm. being a journalist, but sure. I was very mindful of, you know, being careful in telling the story that I was trying to tell primarily the story from my perspective as his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book ends when he's about seven in second grade, when we moved to Hong Kong. Right. And, uh, um, and I, I ended it there for multiple reasons, but a big one was that I felt like he was his, you know, developmentally, he was growing and changing in his sense of identity. And there's a lot that starts to happen when kids get to elementary school. And especially if you, mm-hmm. a kid with hearing loss may not quite understand until they're in a wider world um, that they're different in the ways that they're different. Um, and, uh, and so the emotional part of it for him, I feel came in those next years. And I didn't think I wanted to keep that private for him. I didn't want um, to, you know, uh, so, so there was a, you know, when you decide to write a book, you, you kind of have to figure out what, what it's going to encompass, what it includes and what it doesn't. Um, And, you know, I, so I felt comfortable telling the story of those first six years, essentially, um, Mm -hmm. and getting um, where it was mostly on me, (laughs) although there is, I mean, the fact that he's now become this basketball star is you would (laughs) not figure that. (laughs) So I suppose there's a, there's a sequel of some sort to, to, that's what we're doing, right? This is the sequel. That's a this is a sequel. So how how tall is Alex? Just uh, just uh, he's uh, almost six four. Yeah, wow. he's, um, Yeah, he's so he's a guard. He's you know mm-hmm. he's not mm-hmm. um uh, but he's um but he's tall enough. Yeah, that's yeah. that's incredible. Right. But when you when we talk about coping and talking you know about parents and coping, you know I think. I still hear from time to time how these, you know, the stages of grief and how those are kind of thrown out there. And sometimes they're sort of presented that, oh, once you go through, you know, you know, anger and denial, and then it's all done and it never comes back. And then, you know, it's these stages that are very set in place. And, and then once you go through them all, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um and I think for me, that has never been the case. Um, even my own daughter, who was born at 26 weeks gestation, she didn't have hearing loss, but it was a very traumatic process. And and even today, she's 28 years old now and just got married. But even today, if I'm watching TV and, and see like a, a scene from a neonatal intensive care unit and hear those same sounds, Mm-hmm. I'm immediately right back there in that in that moment of her being in the hospital and, and dealing with that. And so I've always thought, you know, is it's really just an ongoing process of adaptation uh, because there are going to be different transitional periods and different things that are going to happen where these things are going to come up again, these these emotions. That's true. And I think that your um your work as a parent, if we can put it that way, too, is mm-hmm. it's a moving target how to help mm-hmm. kids because they certainly a, a child with hearing loss and a 
child with um, who looks so successful like Alex, I felt like I was always fighting for to make sure he still had services uh, and mm-hmm. things like that. You're talking about the emotional side for mm-hmm. me that what what that has been about a lot is watching him get a sense of his identity and a sense of, um, and mm. the ups and downs emotionally for him, then right. it's hard for that not to reverberate with, mm-hmm. with you. And, uh, and he, um, I mean, he and I have quite a deep bond and sure. still, which is nice, even through his teenage years. And, and mm-hmm. I know that the hearing loss is part of it. I mean, I'm very close to my other kids as well, but you know, he and I spent so much time together. So it's, but mm-hmm. I do remember when he was maybe eight, the first time I understood that there were things about his experience he probably wasn't sharing with me because he thought it would upset me. Um, mm-hmm. Like, like you know, what when something was hard for him or when, um, or he, you know, he, it was uh, an audiologist, Jane Maydale said that to me. She said, right. you know, well, he's probably not telling you about that. I mean, she, we, I can't mm-hmm. even remember now what the thing was. I just remember the shock to my system and bursting into tears, sitting in her office uh, saying, you know, uh, he's, he's experiencing these things that are hard for him and he's trying to spare me probably. Um, and so it's, it's just this ongoing relationship between you and the child and, and you're right, you get, you get cast back, but I have to tell you that for me a little bit, um, I mean, I can still get, I can still get palpitations from that, that first, uh, real hearing test in the sound booth with his little head in front of me and the the manic monkey making all this noise and <laughs> right. on the side and him not turning his head and and right. sitting there and just the dread and the upset was visceral and it still is when I talk about it um mm-hmm. but some of it feels like a blur like just mm-hmm. this big period of intense emotion that then we came through and that, you know, I, I sometimes think I remember sitting, you know, somewhere thinking, I can't believe this. I have a deaf child and I don't know what to do. Uh, And um, I remember those feelings, but I don't, most of it, fortunately for me, I don't feel as, as viscerally. Although I will say that he went, um, in this last year, he's done a postgrad year at a boarding school to play basketball, and um, and it's been mostly a great experience. And certainly in the end, but he got teased there for being deaf in ways that he never had been um, in his life here in Brooklyn. I think that the kids here in Brooklyn had known him. His you know they'd all grown up together, and it's good for mm-hmm. everyone. Just as what you know, exposure to all different kinds of people is the essential thing I think in the world. And so the the kids, it just never was an issue. And I don't think we realized um, how different that could be in different environments and settings. And so myself, my husband, his brothers, I mean, everybody was just ready (laughs) to just go. go, uh, Oh my God. We were a mess. We were so (laughs) mad, you know, and way beyond even my best Mm -hmm. friends were, everybody was just outraged, you know, um, and in an, too much so probably you know um he later said to me you're really overreacting it's fine i've i've dealt with it i've talked to these kids but 
but it's just a reminder of of what it's mm-hmm. like, you know, that these kids are in the world. So that's what I mean when I say that I feel like a lot of my emotions today have to do with where he is and what he's right. feeling, where he is emotionally and what he's feeling about it. Right, right. Well, as a parent and and what kind of advice would you give today's parents um, reflecting back? Uh, you know, if if you could tell that Lydia of, you know, 19 mm. years, well, 17 years ago, mm-hmm. um, what would you tell her today? To do. Um, to do. Yeah. You know, there are, fortunately, I do feel there's a lot of things I did right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, of course, I desperately wish I had figured it out sooner. Um, and so I would say that you shouldn't trust just one early hearing test. <laughs> you right. should be on the ball. But my biggest piece of advice, which happened to come easily for me, so maybe this is uh, not fair to you know make this sound like it's not a big deal, but some parents don't want to know. They want to wait and see. They, they mm. are so, so alarmed by the prospect or worried about labeling a child and getting the testing done. No, 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 no. Don't do that. <laughs> right. Be on the ball fast. It is so much more important to know if there is, in fact, a hearing loss. Um, and obviously, mm-hmm. I, I assume that people listening to the podcast already know that. But but if they're wondering or they're worrying or they're trying to figure out what to do, um, you know, speed is of the essence is is. Right basically my message because as we've just talked about the brain is everything here and i as a science journalist i'm here to tell you how much is happening <laughs> in those teeny brains um in those first years of life and every minute of it counts and so uh so so waiting doesn't do anybody any good um it you know and whatever choices you want to make you need to be actively working on whatever language it is you're giving i hope people right will be choosing spoken and listening approaches um, because I think it's so important. And the other thing I will say in my advice from my science perspective is that, you know, sometimes people say, um, well, you got to wait until the child is old enough and let them choose. Mm -hmm. But the science tells you that if you don't implant a child when they're little, you have chosen. Um, The brain changes uh, over time and it, it won't, they won't have the same choice. Mm -hmm. Way later, they could choose to take the implant off, but you can't go back and redo that. And so, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't be getting into that whole side of it. I don't know if that's what you want to talk about. No, but I, I think that's perfect. That's perfect. I feel that the science is essential for people mm-hmm. to understand, and not everybody does. Um, and you know, why should they necessarily? Right until you're in it, and then it's been so uh, weighted with with politics and complications, but from a pure science point of view, kids need as much language as possible as early as possible. And it's our job as their parents to give it to them. Um, If you want to do ASL, great, but you need to be doing it with really, really intense expert ASL from the get-go. And that's much harder to pull off, right? As you know. Sure, sure. And that's what the research shows. Even parents that want to do ASL, if they are hearing themselves. Right. 
Where, where are they going to go to be immersed and to learn ASL so that they can then be language models for their children? Right. I think it's a, an interesting um, parallel is, you know, I have um, multiple friends whose native language is something other than English and who were raising mm-hmm. their, had their children here. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people were advised to speak in English, not Mandarin or whatever it was to their mm-hmm. children, because the idea being that it was going to be too you know, complicated for the much, child. Yeah. And, but we know better now. It right. is essential that, you know, my friend Sharon, who speak, who's Mandarin Chinese, is her first language. She should have been speaking in Mandarin to her children from the get-go because her native language mm-hmm. is so much richer and stronger. And, um, and you know, uh, and her kids are great and they're doing great. And she's, but I remember thinking how much, how similar it was that what, that what you need is to be able to communicate in your most sophisticated well, sophisticated is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Most natural, natural fully language, yeah. formed language. Right. Right. And, um, and the brain, all those circuits are getting laid down in the brain from day one. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things from a neuroscience perspective is how much is happening even before babies are one, you know, in that mm-hmm. first year, as you right. well know, there's so much more going on and than than we had previously understood. And so, uh, you need to, you need to act, and you you won't, and then you make the best decision you can in the moment um, with the information you have. But you do need to go out and get as much information as you can, and it is out there. Um, but you've got to go looking. Yeah, sometimes you have to really look, um, and I think that continues to be a, an issue all over the country. You know, where yes, it does. Some families can get access; other families just don't. And, uh, and so that's still, still a problem. And so you're, you're talking about the role of parents and, and the process of being language models for their child. And I just wanted to mention Parent Nation, uh, yeah. the book that's, uh, that's out now with, uh, with Dana, with Dr. Dana Suskin. And, and so how did that, how did your involvement uh, happen with all of that? Right. So I'm the co-author with Dana right. and uh, Dana is, is is a cochlear implant surgeon at University of right. Chicago and quite an esteemed one. Um, but she also runs a, um, a research center on early language uh, or early learning and public health. It's called the TMW Center. Um, and I got to know Dana back when I Can Hear You Whisper came out um, because we were running in the same circles of, of the the deaf and hard of hearing world. And we became friends. And then she, her book, 30 million words, which was Mm -hmm. her first book was um, published the year after I can hear you whisper. And we had the same editor, um, Stephen Ah. Morrow at Dutton. And so we, uh, we became friends at conferences, maybe even the very one where I signed the book for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know we went out to dinner in Nashville Mm -hmm. at one point and we did. um, So we were friends, but we, but you know, she lived in Chicago. I lived in New York. We didn't um, talk all that often, but, uh, but we stayed in touch and, and stayed friends. And then, um, and then when she was thinking of um, writing this next book, so I, if you could sum it up, you could say 30 million words is the, you know, it, it wasn't entirely intended to do this, but what it's become is the, the book that parents, individual parents, it's the advice on how to think about language mm-hmm. for your child when they're young. It's kind of what you can do. Um, right. And it's critically important. 
parent nation is the next iteration. It's what society needs to be doing. It's what we right. all need to do to allow parents the space and time to get that early exposure to language for their children, whether they're doing it themselves or whether they're getting high quality childcare. Uh, and so it's all about early brain development and also policy and, and um, you know, big ideas about how we could do this better because we haven't been doing it very well. We, you know, we don't put children and families at the center as a, as a nation. They're kind of on the, they're flung out to the edges uh, or to the periphery of our decisions. Um, and uh, so Dana called me up because really she just wanted some advice. She was changing agents and she, she was sort of publishing world advice, you know, I'm changing agents and I'm thinking I might hire a writer and, you know, how would I go about that? And, I said, we, we'd had the aging conversation, but then about the writer, I sort of said, you know, I, I might be, I might do that. I think I surprised us both because I hadn't ever co-authored a book at that point, although it was something I'd sort of contemplated, but here was someone that I really liked and respected and was friends with. And, and then it turned out actually that we had some, uh, her daughter's dated uh, her daughter dated one of my son's best friends in college wow. and things like that so we had more you know more overlap um so we decided to team up and i was just very honored to help her bring her ideas to the world um and also this was in summer of 2020 when the pandemic had hit and so you know it seemed like a um a the world you know it was a good thing to have a project right that was sort of handed to me um, well, this book is is like a covid baby right it's like it's a covid baby totally <laughs> so it was entirely existed within the within the pandemic at least for me i think she had started right. on it before that but um but so we teamed up and we spent a year uh, writing the book and, um, you know, there was a whole back, I, I, she'd give me an outline and I'd write it and then we'd go back and forth and edit. Um, and, uh, but it was, you know, her, I, her passion for the, for kids and families is just unbelievable and inspiring. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that this is out there. I, 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 I call the book a, um, parenting book for society. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Um, and from, and from a, so from a um, hearing loss perspective, it's not, it's not specifically about that. It's about all, because right. one of the things she came to understand is some of the same things that were a problem in the hearing loss world were microcosms of bigger problems for society in terms of access and, and resources and all of that. Um, but you know, I really think of it as um, the um, the ne we need to be uh, bringing together, for instance, audiology and therapy, and um, making sure that that parents that that everyone is talking to each other, and that it's a much more holistic process than it was anyway back when I was going through this with Alex. I think that's really important, and that kids and families will benefit. And we need to make it as easy as possible for them. Fewer appointments, fewer, uh, you know, I mean, I've had one of my later pet peeves in these recent years, because we only have to, Alex and I, we go in when there's a problem. Otherwise we go into the audiologist once or twice a year, right? That's it just to get remapped or to get, you know, he, get, he gets his hearing test every year. But, you know, sometimes they can't just because of insurance reasons, we can't do two appointments. We can't do two things at once. We have to come back twice. And, you know, this means taking him out of school and traveling and all of that. And 
and uh, and I and and me not you know losing out on work time and all and mm-hmm. for so I mean we were able to manage that but for so many people that's so hard so there's some stupid things in the system <laughs> that I would right. really love to see changed that of course is not what you know you and I alone are not going to be capable of doing that but um, but you know that's I think the goal should be that the barriers to getting Sorry, there goes the cat leaping off the desk. <laughs> the barriers to getting kids the the access that uh, to sound and language that they need and the resources um, we need we need to do a much better job within the hearing loss world and within the wider world. Well, it's it's interesting right now in terms of you know my area, speech language pathology and and audiology and 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 there's a real emphasis on interprofessional training and interprofessional care and, and mm-hmm. sort of patient centered care and all these things. And so there is, a, I think a recognition that we need to be talking more to each other as professionals uh, and, and sort of break out of these silos that we seem to be operating in and, and really communicate and make, like you're saying, make, lives easier, make the patient's life easier uh, instead of having them to travel to multiple places. And one of the things that I've been doing for, for a number of years now is, is telepractice or telehealth, where, of course, we saw that through COVID as sort of being a lifesaver. Right. But, you know, it's a way to bring different professionals together to work with a family or talk to each other uh, like we're doing right now, you know. And so, uh, it, it's it was a great uh, savior for us in terms of uh, of COVID when we couldn't uh, go out, but uh, but you know what I have seen over the years is that you know those those families that live in more rural areas or those families that have other children uh, who can't afford to hire a babysitter, but if they come into the center, it's going to be uh, you know three or four kids together, and that's not going to be useful. And so doing telepractice may be the best way to provide services for them, the most convenient way. So, you know, I think there's there's opportunity for improvement uh, in the overall system. All of us, in everything, right. there's always opportunity. But I'm really glad to hear you say that that, that you're seeing that change coming to practice uh, because I, um, I mean, the, uh, it's, it's almost a joke that, but way back when my, you know, early intervention coordinator was lovely person who was um, looking to be as helpful as possible, but she had, because of the way people got assigned, she'd literally never um, worked with a kid with hearing loss before. And the only assistive device she'd ever ordered was leg braces, you know? So she knew nothing, nothing about the schools or how to, you know, I had to go find it out and then ask her to go find it for me. Um, And I think that, uh, I don't think, I hope it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, I think things are better, but, you know, but, uh, but that's just, you should immediately be shunted to the, to people with expertise uh, and, and it should all be in one place. And that to me is the, um, you know, I know that's, that's an easy, big, simplistic generalization. And yet why not? Why not? (laughs) Why not? Why not? (laughs) Well, do so one, one final question, you know, with, with parent nation, I mean, it's, this is, this is um, sort of the ultimate, if we can achieve this, wow, what a world will have. 
with our current um, political situation in this country, what do you think? Do you think we're ever going to get there? Do you think we as a country will ever do big things again? Yes. Yes, I do. I am long-term <laughs> optimistic, short-term worried, stressed, pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I We are not in a great place right now, but I mm-hmm. do. I very much believe in the Martin Luther King line that, you know, the, the uh, is, what is it? The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Uh, and I think that mm-hmm. is true in in all things that we do over time, we, we move in the right direction, but right now we're in a a backlash. Um, And the idea, um, the fundamental misunderstanding to me, um, because the thing is early childhood, what, what we're really talking about in parent nation is, is a, equal opportunity left and right. Everybody's for it, right? Who wants, who doesn't want great Mm -hmm. opportunities for kids? And, and, and we all should be invested because the success of, of today's children, they're tomorrow's workers and, and uh, Mm -hmm. parents themselves and all of that. And so we need as a society to get this right. Uh, uh, And, um, and so, you know, we can disagree on some of the tactics we use to get there, but the idea that, that um, parents can do it all themselves is the fundamental problem. They can't, and they shouldn't right. have to, and and they can have total, con- they can have a lot of control and authority and, and all this stuff, but they, that, you know, it, it takes a village, it takes a nation. Right. Um, and uh, so it's um, I hope, I hope we get there sooner rather than later. There was a point while Dana and I were working on the book where we thought, Oh my gosh, the Build Back Better Act will get a, get passed and it'll all happen before we're even done. And uh, alas, that is not how, you know, that would have been a good problem to have, but that is mm-hmm. not what happened. Um, that was going to bring us paid parental leave and child better child care and right. universal pre-K and all those good things. Um, we didn't get that, but uh, but so be it. Um, you know, can I, am I allowed to, I, I thought of another you piece of advice what, actually that I'm, I'm like. throwing in that doesn't... Sure. Uh, come in sequence, but um, this is kind of part of the sequel that I was mentioning with mm-hmm. Alex, the, the part that's not in the book. So, you know, early on in those first eight to 10 years, I was so, so worried about the increasing hearing loss in the left ear um, because of this progressive condition he had. So if he got hit in the head, he'd lose it. And then it would come, we'd put steroids, it would come back. And I was right to um, to care about that because I knew that the amount of residual hearing he had was important and it was helping him to succeed in school and, and in life. But the thing that really uh, reframed it for me was talking to other um, deaf adults and teenagers at um, AG Bell conferences and things like that. And I you know, I stood up and asked a question at one of those things about, well, you know, I'm really worried. My son, want, he loves sports. He wants to be a basketball player. He was eight, nine. I don't know what he was at the time, 10 maybe. Um, but I'm so worried that, you know, this isn't the right, this isn't the thing. It's my job as a parent to protect him. And and the deaf adults and adolescents all said, well, is he good at it? And I said, yeah, <laughs> he's really good at it. And mm-hmm. they said, well, that's amazing. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. He's got his thing. Like, and self-esteem and socially and all these other things are good things are going to come out of this. And, um, and I think they maybe knew 
um, what I didn't understand that, you know, we were so far down the train, the track of, of hearing loss that, that, that maybe the, they thought that the benefits were going to far outweigh the loss and they were so right. And the truth is it wasn't basketball that, that kept causing, it was, you know, playing on the, in at recess and getting bumped in the head or something. It was, it was stuff that you really can't control for. And um, so I guess my message to parents is, that you've got to remember the whole child and the things, all the things they need. They need opportunities to shine this. Uh, they need time with friends. They need the chance to build social skills. They need a lot of things. And the hearing is just one piece of who they are and what they'll be. Uh, it's a, obviously it's an important one and it's one you can help with, but, um, but I, I feel that one of the best things I have done since that book came out is to let him, go for it with sports. That's awesome. That's a great piece of advice. Lydia, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast and just best of luck with everything that you're doing and uh, good luck with your next writing project and good luck with everything. Good luck with parent nation with you and Dana. And she is going to be on next. She's our, my next interview as a matter of fact. Oh, terrific. All right. That's great. So, well, Todd, it was great to be with you and to talk to you again after all these years. And um, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you again, Lydia, for joining us on the podcast. And really, I recommend all of her books. She's an extraordinary writer. And as you heard on today's podcast, also a parent of a, a young man who has hearing loss and has written so eloquently about that experience in I Can Hear You Whisper. So a lot to be gained by uh, this extraordinary writer and mother and, and just an, an incredible science writer. So please check out all of her works. And with that, thank you for joining us on the podcast. If you don't mind, please rate, review, subscribe, follow, or share this podcast with anyone you want. And those reviews really do help us attract new subscribers. So we appreciate those five-star reviews whenever you can do that. And until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.